the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Thinking about health care these days? Well, you're not alone. And it seems that getting real information about the state of our medical system is tough to come by. That's why you've come to the right place with Dr. Bill, your radio MD. He's got the answers because he's a doctor. I said he's a doctor, and he wants to hear from you right now. 877-969-8600. This is AM860, The Answer. And now, it's time for Dr. Bill, your radio MD. AM, the answer. It's AM 860, the answer. I think we're using another uh, call sign nowadays, the answer, Tampa Bay, or something like that. At any rate, AM 860, the com is the station's website that I go to. And you can also reach me live and listen to me 9 to 10 AM every Sunday morning, Eastern Standard Time, by going to my website, drbillradiomd.com. That's drbillradiomd.com. And click listen live or join me, and here I am. We had a great show last week, and I was appreciative of all the people that called in and offered uh, thoughts and opinions. And you're certainly welcome to join me at any time. I'm at 877-969-8600. That's 877-969-8600. And uh, this is talk radio, so there you go. Well, I'm I'm really curious about all of the hoopla over President Trump's meeting with Vladimir Putin and what he said after the uh, after the meeting and the press conference that followed in Helsinki and the backlash from the left, people calling him a traitor and treasonous and impeachable and and now Panetta, who was under I believe uh, Obama and uh, has been in the government a good while. He thinks that the president should reveal the conversations that he had, what was discussed with Putin. And if he won't do that, then they want the interpreters to come and uh, testify before Congress. Of course, all of this is moot because the president, under Article 2, Section 2 of the Constitution, has the power to negotiate treaties. That's his power. Now, he cannot finalize the treaties. The treaties have to go through the Senate and be ratified by a two-thirds majority. And the presidents have not been so good at getting their major treaties ratified, starting all the way back with Woodrow Wilson in World War I, the uh, treaty to form the League of Nations, which was the forerunner of the United Nations, was defeated by the Senate. And the Senate didn't like the uh, the agreement to end the war with Germany, and that was amended and changed. And by the time that even came... We apologize for the delay. I have the doc on the phone until we get the technical issues rectified. Good morning, doc. 
Good morning. This is Dr. Bill, your radio MD. Sorry about the technical issues. By the way, folks, it's not at my end, so I'm blaming Bill for all of this. <laughs> my fault. Put it on his back. It's Bill's fault. <laughs> so uh, at any rate, we'll go ahead and do the show. Uh, I'm calling in on my cell phone, so if it doesn't sound the best, then, well, that's just too bad. You'll have to put up with me the way I am. So I wanted to talk about this morning, uh, the president's getting a lot of press over the economic growth. And, of course, he's touting this at 4.1%. For him, this apparently is uh, uh, something to brag about. And I think it's a good thing, too. I don't, I don't take anything away from the president for the efforts he's made in stimulating the economy. And the question is, and this is the one that the Democrats are going to raise, so we're going to have to figure out how to answer this and address this, is that is the growth sustainable? Now, economic growth can come in spurts, and it can look great for a couple of quarters, and then everything cools down, and you're back to where you were. So economic growth occurs when the real output increases over time, and the output is the work that you and I do to manufacture goods or provide services or take care of sick people, whatever it is. And this is measured by our gross domestic product, and that's using a constant price basis. So we have to take a look and see whether or not our gross domestic product is constantly growing. And the, the benchmark has been 2 to 2.5%. Two and, and I think that Obama mentioned something about this, that growth was not sustainable beyond this level of 2 to 2.5%. Two and, and, of course, President Trump is saying, no, I don't agree with that. I think we can grow at 4 to 5% a year. Well, first of all, you have to have the market. So there has to be people to buy the goods or receive the services. And secondly, you have to have a steady inflation base and also wage growth so that people can purchase all of these things. Or you have to have a fall in the price of goods, which we have seen on a number of items, items in part because of the cheap or cheaper production of goods coming out of uh, developing countries like China. So the president is saying, and I think he has a good point, is that we need to, now that China has developed to the point where they're going to be able to take care of themselves and they don't need us to carry them, that we make a parity between our goods, that is, the goods that we produce should be able to be sold in their country without the added-on excise taxes or import taxes and duties that they're adding that we negotiated as part of the agreement to help them get up and running. So now that they're up and running and they're doing well, now we say to them, look, we don't charge you but 5% when you import uh, computers into our country or computer goods. But if we import a computer into your country, you're charging us another 20% in, uh, in taxes that you're adding on to the goods for them to be able to come into the country. And we're happy to pay that. And since we have to pay that, we have to recoup, recoup those costs somehow. How do you do that? Well, you have to charge more for the goods, and then they aren't competitive with the goods that are being manufactured in that country. So it's it's a problem that we have to address, and I think the president's doing the right thing in, in the carrot-and-stick approach that he has. Now, it drives a lot of people crazy because they're not used to a president acting this way. And I've even heard pundits say that we've never had a president like this. Of course, we have. We've had Andrew Jackson, 
who was a similar kind of uh, carrot stick bully kind of guy. And he did not do so well with the economy because he didn't really understand how it worked. And he ended the federal bank charter, which put the country into a recession. However, he did behave a lot like Trump in that he would uh, publicly berate people and he talked about how what a swamp the politics in Washington, D.C. were, and he hated the Washington, D.C. in crowd. And so a lot of similarities, although the business acumen of, of Andrew Jackson was not at the level of that of Donald Trump. So periods of growth are often triggered by increases in demand. If there's pent-up demand, for instance, if we've just come through a bad recession and there's a lot of people that have been waiting to have enough money to put down on a house and move out of an apartment and, and purchase a, a first-year home or move into a second home, then that demand is there. And there has to also be the capital and the goods to meet that demand. So let's say your computer is five years, six years old, and you know that that's not as fast as it needs to be because there are programs out there that are running on much faster, newer computers more efficiently and that you can reach the Internet and cruise the Internet. You can also have Internet telephone calls and do all the things that you want to do on the Internet, but your computer is just not fast enough to handle all of that. Well, then you're going to want to go out and buy a computer. The good thing about computers is that they have been falling to price so that even if you have not had much of a growth in your wages and your income, the goods that you're interested in purchasing, that is the computer goods, have fallen in price, relatively speaking. So you can afford to go out and buy a new computer. Well, you go out and buy a new computer and 50 million other people do the same thing. And so in a short period of time, say six to 12 months, there's a big spike in the number of computers sold. And that's a good thing. But is that sustainable? That's the question. We can continue to produce the same number of computers that are bought over that six to 12 month period. But will they be sitting on the shelf? Uh, will there be a backlog of stock and no demand for it? So we have to stop and think about not only the demand and the supply, but the time period over which these two items are matched up, and we have to make it so that it's a sustainable situation. So instead of having everybody go out and buy a new computer at the end of the recession in roughly the same time period, we hopefully will see people buying staggered over periods of time because some people may be willing to hang on to their old computers a little bit longer and others not so much and others may say well i don't have the money now but i will in a year so there's a number of factors that come into play and as job growth continues to grow continues to expand the job market becomes better then we have more ability to sustain our growth and if it's a 2.5% over 20 or 30 years, well, that's not bad. There's also the argument that growth is often based on short-term public debt rather than on long-term productivity, and that's not sustainable. So we all go out and we borrow or use our credit cards, which is a form of borrowing, to buy our new computer, 
and we pay that off over time. But because we're paying that off over time on our credit cards, we don't have money for other goods. So it's a short-term loan, say 12 to 18 months, that we pay it off over. And then when that ends, where's the sustainability and the growth of that market? However, over long terms, with productivity and low debt or lower debt, which has not been really addressed from what I can see. Now, it doesn't mean that it's not decreasing relative to the growth in the economy, but what it does mean is that I haven't seen it. So the debt, short term, needs to be controlled. And short term debt at our level, at your level and my level, or second mortgages on our homes. Those are intermediate debts, credit cards, uh, revolving charge accounts, uh, paying off something over time. And you go out to the furniture store and they say, well, we'll give you 18 months to pay this off or we'll give you six months where you don't have to make any payments and there's no interest charged. Well, somewhere along the line, you're going to be paying for that money because somebody's putting that money forward and that money is a tool and that tool has a value to it. And so whoever is putting that tool out there is expecting somebody to pay them for, for the use of that tool. They're running that money to you and me. So we have to increase our capacity to grow as well as our jobs and our income base. And so the capacity to grow requires that there's more demand over a period of time, which means we need more people. Uh, we need new markets that people are interested in, in uh, purchasing into, whether it's electronics or automobiles. Uh, we see this growth in uh, food industry. We see organically grown foods becoming a big deal. And so this is a segment of the market that is growing. We see a growing world population, so there certainly is increased demand for agricultural products. And this is one of the areas in which the president has been very pointed and specific that the soybeans that are grown in the United States will not be <clears throat> penalized by uh, countries around the world that we are in uh, a, a negotiation of little tiffs over import-export fees and taxes and fair trading practices. So that is something that we look at and we look at closely since a lot of our exports, as I've pointed out in the past, at least over the past few centuries, have been economic, have been agricultural uh, products rather than mechanical or electronics or other products. So that's been a big part of our economy, and that's been a big part of our economy since we were original colonies and the money that was brought in up until the Civil War period timed into the country was largely because of agricultural products that were sold overseas in Europe. And this continues to be a big part of our income from outside the country. And so the gross domestic product per person, that's often looked at as the key indicator of the standard of living of, of the citizens of you and me and our economy and of our economic health and welfare. But there are some broader measures that people want to take into account, and it's understandable. And the uh, the socialist candidate who's getting a lot of play for the Democrats is bringing this up and saying there's a great disparity between the haves and the have-nots or the income of the wealthy versus the income of the average Joe. And so 
<clears throat> Although you and I may be getting by okay, there are people who are making so much money that they don't know what to do with it. And you and I are still living somewhat check to check. So we have to stop and think about the disparity. Are we able to save any money relative to our income in the same way that somebody like Bill Gates or Zuckerberg is able to save money relative to their income? Because there comes a point in our income in which we're paying all of our bills and then we have something left over. Now, for most of us, it's tough to do. You know, we're not saving that much money. Most of us have a forced retirement plan uh, and a backup with Social Security, which isn't much, but at least it's a little something. But there are people who make so much money that they have bought everything that they could possibly buy, and they don't need anything else. They've already got a jet, and they've already got a 40,000-square-foot mansion, and they've already got all the uh, toys and accoutrements, and they can afford the, the foods and the vacations and the evenings out. And most of us have to budget for that, have to stop and think about that. And so there's a price or there's an income disparity between a small proportion of the population and the rest of us. And so we have to think about that as an indicator of how we're doing financially as a country. And the socialists will say, well, there's an inequality, there's a disparity in, in the distribution of wealth in which you can redistribute the income of the country more equitably. And there are people who say, well, that really has some merit to it. A lot of people will say, look, you know, if you've got the brains and the bronze and you have the, the desire and the ability to go out and work and make your way through life, then you should be able to keep what you make minus some amount for roads and public health and other services, military that we all think are, that we can all agree upon as being necessary for the economy and the nation to grow and prosper and be healthy. So some taxes are going to be paid no matter what. The president and the Republican Congress have cut taxes tremendously, and we've seen the economy growing, and I think that we've hit $20 trillion for the first time ever. And uh, that's a great thing because that means that the taxes that are brought in will also increase. Will they increase to the level that they were before? Don't know. We have to see that. The projections are on the basis of some of these economic indicators that they will and that they'll surpass the tax income that we had prior to the relative decrease in taxes that the Republican Congress and the president brought into play. We also have to look at replacing capital goods. And you say, what the heck are capital goods? Well, capital goods are the pieces of equipment that businesses purchase, and they depreciate them over time. And how, how do you do that? Depreciation is when you say, I'm buying this echocardiogram machine for $25,000, and I'm going to depreciate it over a five-year period on a level basis. So every five years, I depreciate every year I depreciate it by $5,000. So on my books, the first year it's a 20,000 or $25,000 item. The second year it's a $20,000 item, then 15, then 10, then five, and then down to zero. So when I add up the net worth of my business, 
I add in the value of the equipment minus its depreciation. So the first year I bought it, it was worth 25000 The first year you buy your car, it's worth 30000 But over time, it depreciates, and it doesn't have as much value. And you see this when you go to buy a new car or trade in the old one. So capital equipment has to be brought into play. And if we include that in our gross domestic product, then that's going to give us a true gross as opposed to net figure. The net figure is when we don't count in the capital equipment. You say, well, that doesn't make any sense. It's, it, it's just another way of looking at individual economic growth. That's true. We've got to include this because capital goods are also products that are made. They're made here. They're made overseas. They're made uh, different ways and at different factories and parts are made here and there. And some are imported parts that are put in, then put together into whole products. But this gives us what we make and what we output, whether it's big pieces of equipment or little things, whether it's food or clothing or shelter or homes, all this goes into our gross domestic product. So we have to value all this, including those products that we export. And so property income, however, may or may not be included in it. And Property income is income which goes in and out of a country based upon actual property that you lease or you purchase or you sell uh, <clears throat> independent of other aspects of the economy. And this can flow in and out of a country, too, if it's property that's overseas or investments that are overseas. And this can include also profits and dividends from overseas investments. So if you buy uh, stock in Alibaba, which is a Chinese-based company that sells uh, wholesale goods and services online, you can get anything and everything from computers to chemicals to uh, automobile parts to garage door parts. I mean, you can get anything and everything. Aluminum, steel, all kinds of products can be purchased on Alibaba. And you can purchase it in relative safety because they have uh, uh, an assurance if you purchase through their website, much like eBay has an assurance that if you don't get the, the materials or the goods that you paid for online and you don't get it in a timely fashion, that your money will be protected. You're, you'll be able to get your money back if you send this back or if you complain that you didn't get this piece of uh, equipment that you paid for online through eBay or Alibaba. So it's a relatively safe and growing market on Alibaba. And they're selling not only Chinese-made goods, but they're also selling Indian-made goods. Anybody can can join Alibaba as a producer and a seller, and anybody can join it as a buyer. But this then becomes something that is exported out of China, and so it becomes income for the Chinese economy. It adds to their gross domestic product. What do we do? Well, we sell goods as well overseas, and we have various vehicles through which we do this. We have a domestically-based company called Amazon. Most of us know about that, which sells retail goods. And it now sells retail goods all over the world. So you can go on to Amazon in Europe, 
or in Asia, as well in the United as well as in the United States, and you can purchase goods from all over the world. Hopefully, a lot of these goods are being manufactured in the United States, and from what I can see, it looks like the companies that are the majority that are selling on on Amazon or presenting goods to be purchased on Amazon are American-based companies, but a lot of those are importing other goods from China and India and other areas of the world where the production is cheaper. However, if you buy pieces of goods and then put them together here in the United States, it's a different story because you're actually manufacturing something. You say, well, not all of what is being used is American-made. No, it's not, but at least we're using labor, and we have to use some of our own goods to put two pieces of motherboards together to make a piece of electronic equipment, and it can stimulate other areas of growth in the United States. Let's say you want to make an ultrasonic uh, cleaner. An ultrasonic cleaner is just a, uh, a high-frequency bell that you take and hook to a high-output amplifier, and you can put that in a bath of water or in a big vat of cleaning fluids, and you can drop things in there and clean them. And we see a lot of the women purchasing these little ones, these little ultrasonic cleaners, to put their jewelry in. And so these pieces can be made, the motherboard, and the electronics may be made overseas in China or Korea or Japan or Taiwan. But we may make the bells here because we can make the bells less expensively and with better products than we would get overseas. And that's some of what the president is pushing, saying that, look, not only do we need to produce things here in the United States, like make our own steel and aluminum, and quit relying on foreign powers for this, but also we can make a better, higher quality of steel because we have the better technology and we have the better production and we have a more educated uh, workforce. How long that will be the, the, the standard, I don't know, a, a better prepared workforce. And a lot of what we say in education is we need to make sure that our workforce is as well prepared, if not better prepared, when they go out and get a job than anybody else in the world. So we press higher education, and that includes trade schools and associate degrees. So at any rate, we want to maintain a growth rate and an objective for that. We don't want growth to rise too fast because then you've got boom, and you don't want it to grow too slow or you've got a bust. And if you have a negative growth for two quarters, well, then we're in a recession. And a recession is not good. So we have unstable growth, either too much or too little, which are booms or busts. And these can come about when there's a lot of pent-up demand, when there's easy credit. We saw a real boom in the housing market in the two, early 2000s. And that ended up in a humongous bust that put the country and the world into a recession. So we want to be able to manage the money and the goods and the productivity in a way that is sustainable, in a way that we can give back what we take out of the system. And for 
a lot of countries, 2.5% annual growth is something that they shoot for. The problem with excessive growth is it can lead to goods and service inflation and the cost of goods inflates and exceeds the ability of the average worker to purchase house price inflation, which we saw in the early 2000s. We can have the other side of it, which is wage inflation, and then there's more money. And if there aren't enough goods, then the price of goods shoots up. We can also see wage inflation put pressures on the goods that people produce, that companies produce, put pressure on increasing the cost of the goods to pay for the wages. We have to be careful of labor shortages, and we see this in medicine frequently when there's a boom. Uh, it's hard to find good people to work in, in the medical industry, to work in medical offices, to be nurses in hospitals, and then there's a, a competition for good nurses and good medical personnel, ancillary medical staff, and even doctors become a commodity that are bid for. And I see a lot of the young people coming out of the residencies nowadays making way much more money than I would have ever dreamed of making, relative, relatively speaking. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm happy for them, more power to them, but that's a form of inflation because there is such a demand and not enough of a supply of doctors to fulfill all the slots that are needed. Same way with the nurses and the nursing assistants and the office people. So labor shortages are a real problem. And especially when we're in a boom economy like now where there's very low unemployment. And so what do we do? Well, we can import labor. And I don't have a problem with that as long as it's some organized, structured fashion for that. Sounds like sounds like Joe wants me to go to break, or Bill wants me to go to break. Yep. I'll be back. This is Dr. Bill. With SRN News, I'm Michael Harrington in Washington. Cambodians have voted today in an election virtually certain to return to office. Prime Minister Hun Sen and his party, who have been in power for more than three decades. With the main opposition silenced, local and foreign rights groups have agreed that the polls will not be credible. According to figures released by the National Election Committee after the polls closed today, nearly 7 million people voted. The deadly Northern California wildfire Burning near Redding continues to take toll on thousands of dazed evacuees. Nearly 40,000 people are out of their homes. Five people have died in the fire, including a 70-year-old woman. And more than 500 buildings have been destroyed. 5,000 more are in the line of the fire. And the death toll from a strong earthquake that struck Indonesia's popular tourist island of Lombok today has risen to 14. This is SRN. 
News. Dr. Bill for Bay Area Medical, located at 6399 38th Avenue North in St. Pete, 727-384-6411, 727-384-6411. Full service clinic with x-ray, heart imaging, ultrasound, stress testing, and minor surgery. We provide quality health care in a warm and friendly atmosphere. We are multilingual, well-trained, and certified. Most American insurance and new patients accepted. Bay Area Medical, home of can care, 727-384-6411. 727-384-6411. Hello, this is Dr. Bill Handelman for our good friends at Tampa Bay Imaging. TBI provides state-of-the-art MRI and CT scanning with the lowest radiation possible. Most insurance plans accepted and self-pay rates are very competitive. TBI is conveniently located in Tampa and St. Pete with evening and weekend appointments, so call TBI today or ask your doctor. In Tampa, call 813-386-3674. St. Pete, call 727-545-9674. I'm Chuck McDowell, CEO of Wesley Financial Group and timeshare cancellation advocate. I was sued by the largest timeshare company in federal court for simply helping people cancel their timeshare that they had been lied to about. The jury sized me up and came back with a verdict after only 20 minutes. And yes, I won. My husband and I are more than grateful to everyone at Wesley Financial Group. You know, thanks to Chuck and his team, we feel as though a weight has been lifted and we can move on without the worry of a troublesome timeshare. Whether you owe ten dollars to $250,000 on your timeshare, it's my mission to get you out of your timeshare, eliminate your payments, and get them off your back permanently. And we proudly hold an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau. Want to learn more about getting rid of your troublesome timeshare? Call Wesley Financial Group now for your free consultation. Call 800-786-9300. That's 800-786-9300. 800-786-9300. Saturday afternoons at 1215. Join Paul Porter and the home team for the Casper's Company, McDonald's Restaurant's High School Athlete of the Week, honoring student athletes making a positive impact in our community on and off the field. The Casper's Company, McDonald's Restaurant's High School Athlete of the Week is Christina Budsman of King High School in Tampa. The Casper's Company, McDonald's Restaurant's High School Athlete of the Week, Saturday afternoons at 1215 during the home team on AM 860. The Answer. Here is your exclusive AccuWeather forecast. For today, periods of clouds and sun with a thunderstorm in parts of the area later on with a high 90. And tonight, increasingly cloudy with a thunderstorm in spots late with a low 79. By tomorrow, mostly cloudy with a thunderstorm in the afternoon and a high of 88. That's your AccuWeather forecast. I'm Alex Mack for AM860, The Answer. Difficulty with the uh, with the feed, at least the feed from the radio station to my headset. But uh, Bill tells me that we're doing good with me talking to you over the radio. So I'm just going to do that, and he can text me when I need to take a break or shut the show down. So I was talking about the economy and what a good job the president is doing at this point in time in terms of 
sustaining and growing the economy, and he's touting 4.1% growth in the last quarter. And a lot of people are saying this is not sustainable, and he's saying, I think it is, and I think we can go even higher. And some of the problems that we run into when we have a strong growth like this, including uh, inflation, uh, job shortages, or not employee shortages, not job shortages, but not enough people to man the jobs, uh, rising prices and rising wages, and therefore increase in the cost of goods, and all these things have to be balanced somehow so that it's sustainable and it's uh, it, it, it doesn't get out of hand. And we also want to stop and think about whether or not we're helping or hurting future generations. Are we looking at things in a short-term fashion uh, and not looking at it long-term and how will this affect our children and grandchildren? And a lot of people will say, well, look, the more we produce as a world, the more carbon dioxide we're going to kick into the atmosphere and the more we're going to pollute the atmosphere. And other people say, well, that's really way overplayed. And from my perspective, I think that we can come up with technology that can deal with this. I've been an, a proponent of nuclear energy for all of my life, starting in junior high school. And a lot of people don't like that because they hear such negativities about nuclear energy and nuclear waste, but it's really caused very little, if any, problems, relatively speaking. And the main problems have been big catastrophes like what happened in Japan with the tsunami. And even that really hasn't affected many people. The plants themselves, the nuclear reactors, are damaged or destroyed, and it's going to take decades before workers can get back in there and clean it all up. But it's not polluting the overall atmosphere and there have been no deaths that I know of from radiation or nuclear uh, leaks in that area. You may know more than I do, but I haven't seen it. And it's like Chernobyl, there were only 54 deaths from radiation itself. People got out of town days before the reactor actually blew up. And so I'm not too worried about that. But we can use our technology and our big brains to manage the problems of carbon dioxide. And by the way, a lot of people think carbon dioxide is the main greenhouse gas. It's not. It's water. It's water because with respiration, whether it's an engine guzzling gasoline and breathing or whether it's you and me using glucose and, and making energy and breathing, we expel not only carbon dioxide, but also water, and so do our engines. And you'll see on a cold day, you'll see a little cloud coming out of the exhaust of cars all over the place. That's water vapor. That's water vapor. So water will trap more heat than carbon dioxide, and there's a lot more of it. And, uh, and you know, oddly, one of the problems that economies around the world face is a lack of drinking water, a lack of water to use for uh, production and factories because a lot of manufacturing requires water. Uh, the engines that generate our electricity, they require water to cool them down. That includes nuclear reactors as well as coal reactors. You have to have some way of cooling all this down, otherwise it'll get out of control. And so water is 
uh, it's a mixed uh, it's a mixed bag, and it's interesting to see how it's handled around the world. Then we have to think about the true value of our goods compared to other countries, and there's something called uh, price parity, and that means that we look at the the British pound, the European euro, the U.S. dollar, and the Chinese yuan, yuan, and we say how much of each of these currencies does it cost to buy, say, a Twix bar, a candy bar? And so let's say it costs a buck in the United States. It costs a dollar thirty euro, a dollar fifty pound, and thirty-five cents of the yuan. Then we take those four figures and we say, well, this is the actual value of one for each of these. So one U.S. dollar is worth 1.3 euros and 1.5 pounds. And, and then we have a price parity. So we can say, okay, now that we know what the value of this item is, we can do it for all the items that are utilized by all these economies in a similar fashion. And we can come up with the actual value of the good relative to each economy. And that's called price parity. And so your dollar may go further in China right now. But if you make it all equal, you make all the currencies equal, then it will not. And it may be even more because there may be inflationary pressures in China that there are not here right now because their economy is growing so much faster than ours. So there's a number of factors that we have to consider when we look at economies and economic growth. And I'll say this to the president. You have my support, and I have no problems with disarming North Korea and disarming Iran and causing a civil war in Iran so that the Iranian people take back their government from these crazy mullahs. And I have no problem with a growing economy. I have no problem with technology improving. I think these are all good things. Uh, we just have to make sure that we bring everybody along with us. And hopefully we're doing that. Looks like the tax cuts are helping everybody to feel a little bit easier. And there's more spending in general. And we have to remember that economic welfare is not just economic growth. It's how everybody's doing relative to each other. And you say, well, look, if I'm paying my bills and I'm eating and I'm, I'm in good health and I have health care, uh, what do I care what Bill Gates does with his 10 billion extra dollars? Uh, you know, a lot of us feel the same way. I mean, I, I really don't have a desire to make huge amounts of money. I'm happy with the lifestyle that I have. And although it may not be a uh, 100-year-old uh, Chateau Lafitte Rothschild wine that I drink at dinner, I'm just as happy with a $15 bottle of wine from Sam's Club, and that works for me. And if I'm happy, what's the difference? So there's a lot of factors we need to consider, and I'm not going to beat this to death anymore. I think it's uh, an interesting uh, area, and I have fun with it. But here's something that I heard, on, and you can jump in at any time and join me, 877 969-8600. That's 877-969-8600.
and I can uh, I can answer questions or join conversations. Be a little bit difficult because I'm listening to Joe through my phone and transmitting to Joe through my headset and the internet. But at any rate, we're at eight seven seven nine six nine eighty six hundred. So I heard uh, on the Michael Medved show, he was interviewing somebody and they were talking about uh, extraterrestrials having visited the planet and all these people who claim they were abducted by aliens. And I, <clears throat> I think it's, I think it's kind of uh, interesting. And I've said for decades, it's, it's the, the odds of an extraterrestrial life form being intelligent enough and advanced enough to have space travel and to find us in this endless sea of stars and galaxies is so astronomical as to not be realistic. First of all, at, at our latest estimations, there's one billion trillion stars in the universe. One billion trillion. So that's one with 24 to 27 zeros behind it. And only a small percentage of these are going to be stars that can sustain planetary forms like ours. And only a small portion of those are going to have life evolve or grow on it. And only a small proportion of those are going to be able to evolve or will evolve into life forms that have some kind of intelligence. And we're not the only intelligent life form on Earth. We know that primates are intelligent and self-aware. We even know about octopuses, octopi. They have some intelligence, dolphins, whales, but they're not at our level. They haven't developed the tool use that we have, and they haven't developed the ability to manufacture goods the way that we have. And so we have to look at all these star systems and planets and potential for life on these star systems and planets and say, how many of these are actually going to have an intelligent life form evolve and develop the ability to travel in space and not just travel from here to the moon or to Mars because those are short trips and, and those in and of themselves are tremendous undertakings for our level of technology, but mount interstellar travel. Remember, the closest star is four to five light years away from us. And what is a light year? It's the distance that light travels in one year. How fast does light travel? 186,000 miles per second. So even if we started out now in a conventional spaceship with a rocket on the end of it, it would take us a lifetime to reach the next star system, to reach the next star closest to us. Well, you know, you're not going to get a whole lot accomplished by traveling there, not knowing what's there, and just hoping that you come upon a planet that you can inhabit. And so it's highly unlikely that we, in your lifetime and my lifetime, are going to see interstellar travel. I say that, but, you know, I thought it would be unrealistic for us to develop the computers that we have at this stage of our uh, technological evolution. Maybe it is. At any rate, let's look at our own galaxy, the Milky Way, which is hundreds of billions of stars. And let's say that 100,000 of those stars are similar to our sun and that 
a certain percentage of those, let's say 50%, have developed solar systems similar to ours. And let's say that 10% of those have Earth-like planets, which have water and have an atmosphere which is conducive to life growing, as we know it, carbon-based life forms. And then you go to a smaller set that actually develops life forms and a smaller set that has intelligent life forms and an even smaller set that has intelligent life forms that can travel in space and an even smaller set that has developed the technology to travel light years and short enough time periods that they can make space travel practical and realistic. So when I hear people say there are aliens that have visited our planet, you know, that's just, I mean, it's, it's astronomically impossible or improbable, not impossible, but improbable that aliens have visited our planet. It's astronomically improbable that we'll visit any planets outside of our solar system within yours and my lifetime. And how far can you go? And how can we travel in space? How can we get a spaceship going fast enough that we can reach some percentage of the speed of light and get to the next star system and then get to the next star system from there in this humongous galaxy that we live in, the Milky Way, that's tens of thousands of light years across. And that has not only the difficulties of getting close to the speed of life to be able to travel across it in any meaningful time, but also we have to develop the technology that would protect whatever was traveling at that speed so that it wouldn't be damaged by interstellar dust and asteroids and different things that it would run into. So you'd have to have some kind of material that was resistant to being punctured when you're moving at high speeds. And you'd also have to have some kind of a force field around it that would deflect away anything that you might run into. So these are humongous technological hurdles that we have to jump and that any civilization and that any intelligent life form would have to overcome in order to mount space travel and to mount it in a time period which would be amenable to being able to travel from one star system to another. And okay, let's say that you get to another star system and you're not sure if there's an, a planet there that you can inhabit. So what are you gonna do if there's no planet there? And there's no way to resupply. You may have exhausted everything that you brought with you in the hope that you would find a, a planet that was inhabitable. And these are just the beginning of the problems that we're going to have to face if we're going to be able to travel in space. And listen, these are the same problems that any other intelligent life form in the universe would have to overcome as well. And we think that the universe is 13 to 14 billion years old, billion years old. And for us to be visited by another intelligent life form would mean that within the time frame of our development as a technologically advanced society, say 10,000 years, 12,000 years when we started farming and domesticating our animals, 
and developing hard technology. And we went through the different ages, Stone Age, Bronze Age, Iron Age, Steel Age, Computer Age, and all these things. So we're talking about an infinitesimally small period of time in which we have developed a technologically advanced society. 10,000 years. And you're talking about a universe that from what we can figure out is 13 billion years old. And even if there were millions and millions of intelligent planetary life forms that developed throughout the universe and say thousands that have developed within the Milky Way, did they develop at the same time as ours? Have they come and gone? What's the lifespan of an intelligent life form? Do they evolve into something that's not even recognizable as a life form? Do they transfer their intelligence into machines which can live infinitely longer lifespans than carbon-based life forms? Would they recognize us as an intelligent life form? Or would we recognize them? How would they get here? I mean, these are all big questions. And so if you say, well, I believe that intelligent life forms have visited Earth, and I believe that people have actually been abducted and taken into spacecrafts. All of this has been looked at over and over, and it's so unbelievable, and the odds are so infinitesimally small that it just doesn't make any sense to me. First of all, the amount of energy that would be required and the technology that would be required to mount interstellar travel and to get to some place in any meaningful lifetime is just undoable at our level of technology anyway. You say, well, they're looking at things like plasma drives. And yeah, I mean, you know, there are projects going on, but these are on very small scales. So what's plasma? Plasma is when you have a substance Let's say you have hydrogen, which is the simplest element in the universe. It's got one proton and one electron. And you can create a hydrogen mass, a plasma-like, a jelly-like mass of goods that are composed of protons and electrons that are detached from each other and swirling around in this humongous ball of, of gel. And this humongous ball of gel can produce energy given the right stimulus. And that energy can be pushed out the back of a, of a spacecraft. And the push of it out the back of the spacecraft will give it a push forward for the spacecraft. And yes, this is doable, but it's doable at minutely, infinitesimally small amounts right now. We know this happens in, in nature because we know that, that the lightning bolts can create plasma balls. And we've measured those, but we don't know quite yet how to capture and hold on to those in any sufficiently large enough amount to be useful to us as an energy form. And there's other energy forms that we were looking at, nuclear explosions that are controlled, fission and fusion. Uh, all these things are certainly within our reach, but over what time frame, I don't know. So at any rate, I'm not sure that we have the ability to travel anywhere in any meaningful time frame. And I don't think that anything else in the universe 
has been able to do this and has been able to do it within the time frame of our existence here on Earth. So I don't think aliens have visited the planet. I'd, I'd be stunned if they had. I, I, I just don't think it's mathematically, it's just not probable. And scientifically, it's almost too difficult to handle. But looks like we're getting to the end of the show here. And I guess I guess Bill's barking in my ear. We got about 15 seconds left. Sorry for the inconvenience this morning, and uh, appreciate everybody listening to me and being with me. And this is Dr. Bill, your Radio MD, and we'll catch you next week. Bless everybody get behind the president. I'm out of here, bud. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.